You may be seated. And turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're visiting with us today, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors on staff here. We're so glad to have you. If you would like to get on our email newsletter, um, most of our announcements and information goes out via email. You can just grab one of those uh, visitor cards in the pew rack in front of you, fill it out, and drop it in the offering plate, which you can find up here or in the back. If you'd like to give your tithe and offering to the church, you can do that by mailing a check-in um, online through the website or, again, in the offering plates um, in the front and the back. We are uh, working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians and um, are in chapter 6, starting with verse 12. I'll read from 12 through 20. This is God's word. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and another. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word. The grass withers, the wisdom of man fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So we join with me and ask his blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. You are, O God, the great fortress for your people. And when we build on your word, we can no longer be easily storm-tossed in this world. And so help us to be hearers and doers of your word. Help us to be those who love every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And may we, by your Holy Spirit, experience it with power this morning. Unstop our ears, open our eyes, that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Maybe some for the first time. Entrusting themselves to his care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, two preliminary points um, as we're working our way through this. Uh, Over the next few weeks, over the next few chapters actually, we're going to be talking, Paul's going to be talking a lot about sex and sexuality. And we said a couple weeks ago that we're going to try to avoid two ditches here. I have, uh, we love to have kids in worship. Um, It is a value of ours. One of our core values is that we are one family and we want kids in worship. 
Um, I also have a nine-year-old, and so I'm going to try to make this age appropriate for them. But I also have two college-age kids, and I am convinced that every generation needs to grow up hearing from God's Word in the area of sex and sexuality. So there's two ditches that I'm going to try to avoid. Um, I'm sure I'll fall into both of them at some point. Second, um, before we jump into this text, is that Christian ethics, biblical ethics, biblical, any area of biblical ethics is always about the wisdom of God. But the wisdom of God is always expressed through the cross. And so a biblical sexual ethic has to start with Christ Jesus and him crucified. Right? It's more than just about marriage between a man and a wife. That is not robust enough. Before you can even think, therefore, about human flourishing in any area of life, you first have to ask the question of design. What did God design us for? Before you can, and that's just generally true, before you can figure out how anything is supposed to operate to its best intended ends, you have to first ask what is its intended design. For instance, if I want to get in my car and fly, I'm going to have trouble. As much as I would love to, I can't pet my talk myself into it. I can't pretend it's something different than it is. I can't modify it, cajole it. I can't even put racing fuel into it. It's still just going to be a car. That's what it's designed for. Design is going to limit its appropriate use. Or another example, children, don't put metal in a microwave. It's not designed for that. It will have disastrous results. And so when it comes to being a human being, to ask what it means to flourish, design dictates appropriate ends. God made us bodies. God didn't just make us bodies that our soul could inhabit it. God made us bodies. The first thing we read about when it comes to being made in the image of God is that God formed the body First, a physical body out of the dust of the earth. He grabbed the dirt and made a body full of dignity and sensations and value and worth. And then taste buds and desires. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man then became a living creature. That's what it means to be human. We are embodied Souls, not souls living in a body shell like some thing can be done with the body and nothing has no consequences on who we are at the core of our being. We are embodied souls. When Eve is brought to Adam, when the woman is brought to Adam, he doesn't start singing and say, oh, soul of my soul. He says, that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's amazed that God made another human being with a body as an embodied soul. And what you do with your body, that's our intended design, affects us at the deepest possible levels. For instance, when you don't eat, you get hangry. When you don't sleep, you can become spiritually numb. When you suffer chronic pain in your bodies, it's easily to become depressed. 
Because God made us both body and soul, and so to be embodied souls is what it means to be a flourishing human being. And to even to begin to ask the question of where does one start and the other begin is like asking of cake, where does flour start, sugar end up, and then eggs end. Who knows, and who cares? They are together, a great delight. Together they make one glorious thing, and, and this Reality that we are embodied souls when denied is like putting metal in the microwave. It's going to have disastrous, catastrophic ends, particularly when it comes to sexual immorality. So the end of verse 13 and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body is not meant... It's the language of design. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Now, I've said this a couple weeks ago. Paul's use of the word for sexual immorality in the original language is actually a broad term that catches a whole bunch of things. Everything from Adultery to homosexuality to pedophilia and prostitution and polygamy and pornography and sex outside marriage. So whatever you think, if you're thinking, I wonder if this belongs in Paul's category of sexual immorality, the answer is probably does. And here's Paul's point. We weren't designed for that. The body is not meant, it's not designed for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so three things, if you're taking notes, three things. We're going to look at, first, the false freedom that the Corinthians embraced. Second, the true freedom that Jesus bought. And then thirdly, the freedom to free, flee from sexual immorality. The freedom to flee, if you're taking notes, don't put free in there. Put flee in there. Don't, the freedom to flee from sexual immorality. So first, the freedom that the Corinthians, the false freedom that the Corinthians embraced. The Corinthian church understood in part the tremendous and amazing freedom that Jesus has earned for his people. In fact... They were celebrating this all throughout. Paul keeps coming back to this. this, The fact that they understood their freedom but were twisting it. Look at verse 12. It seems that they're here in verse 12 that the Corinthians were fond of a saying within their church. It's an ancient bumper sticker of sorts. Paul quotes it twice. All things are lawful for me. They're parading that around. All things are lawful for me. In our translation, it's in quotation marks. That's an interpretive decision. So ancient Greek doesn't have quotation marks. Some of your translations might not have those quotation marks. But it's a good thing to assume that Paul here is quoting one of their sayings. But it's probably a saying that they had picked up from Paul himself. It sounds like something that Paul himself might have told them in reference to something like the Old Testament ceremonial laws or the laws surrounding washings. In those things, in Christ have been done away with. 
A person who is in Jesus Christ, who's entrusted himself, doesn't have to wash anymore if you've been in contact with a dead body or go through ceremonial washing after your menstrual cycle. Because if we see in verse 11, those were already washed or in Christ. They were already sanctified. That means set aside for God's holy purposes. And so thus you can imagine them celebrating all things are lawful for me now. There's radical freedom in Jesus Christ. But it begins to seem like, or it seems at least, like the Corinthian church had picked up that truth and began to twist it. Began to apply it to sexual immorality. And it's typical, it's a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth, which is always a lie. So watch what Paul does here. Again, he takes them back into a deep theology of the cross to understand the problem of sexual immorality. Students, I've long said that I think that we need to rediscover a deep theology around the body before we can ever talk about sex and sexual immorality. Much of, much of what we say is just going to fall on deaf ears if we are not first starting with the cross, but also going deep with our with our theology. Because Jesus' view on sex and sexuality is unique. It's very unique in the world in which we find ourselves. We'll find ourselves being outsiders if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And people looking at you like you're, like you're weird. And because Jesus' view on sex and sexuality is unique. But it's uniquely beautiful. The effects on a disembodied attempt at sex has been catastrophic culturally. As we've tried to remove sex from a good view of the body, it has left us culturally in a very difficult place. It's long been noticed that cohabitation before marriage has a direct correlation to divorce rates. Pornography has become more mainstream it's also been noticed that interest in sex is on a decline. It's hard to invest in an actual person with all of our problems and quirks when you just have a disembodied fantasy in front of you. And so Paul takes them back and he says, While it's true in Christ all things are lawful for me, he says, You've forgotten something. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but... And so he takes us to this killer line. But I won't be enslaved by anything. You see what addiction does? And this is where he's pushing us. It's like if you give yourself to this embodiment of sexual immorality. It will hide, as Jeremiah Burroughs says about Satan and his tactics. It will show the bait and hide the hook. It will lure us into a deep addiction. And a deep addiction only and ever leaves us less, so much less than human. No one looks at a meth addict and their body wastes away and says, that's what a flourishing human being looks like. And no one looks at a porn addict and as they lose their humanity and unable to go hours without the dopamine dump that's involved, both end up giving up their freedom to be enslaved at the end, the promise of freedom if you just abort that baby, then you'll be free. Haunts the house of the heart with guilt and shame and regret. 
The sexual liberation movement of the last 50 years has left us anything but liberated and free. Casual hookups promise joy and fulfillment as you are free to truly, we're told, be yourself, unhinged from any restraint, and then having to deal with the hollowness of the specter that hovers over your soul. All things are possible for me, but all all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And then he takes us into the better freedom that Jesus buys for his people. Because here's the thing. Perhaps you've noticed this. If not, here's a little clue on how to live life. Simply to warn of the danger of something, especially when it's incredibly powerful like sex or drugs, Simply to warn is not simply enough. We need a better vision for what it, than what we're going to leave behind. Because the reason that sex and drugs are so powerful is because they ignite our bodily pleasures. Try to a drug addict. What are you, well, I just enjoyed it. Sexual immorality is so enjoyable because it ignites our bodily pleasures because we're embodied souls and this is exactly what the corinthians were thinking what's the problem with sexual immorality this is just the natural body doing its thing these are just natural desires appetites that need fulfillment and it's natural that's all that sexual immorality is it's just the natural body doing its thing and this is what they said in verse 13 this is their reasoning Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Now, in our translation, the quotation marks end there. I think the quotation marks should stretch out a bit so that the Corinthian bumper sticker is actually saying this. Food is meant for the body and uh, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and, or another. In other words, they're saying, look, this is all that we are in this world. It's all that we are. We're just embodies. And bodies were meant for sex and sex for the bodies. And who cares because at the end, God's going to destroy it all. So let's enjoy it while we can. Sexual morality just doesn't really matter all that much because God's going to destroy the body. So what we do with our bodies is just not that important. Again, it's a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth. There's always a lie. And that that half-truth is undeniable. Our bodies were made for that, from our organs to our hormones, we are sexual beings. And there will be a day in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no longer be sexual relationships. This is what I think Jesus means when he says to the Pharisees that, or that yeah, the, the, the design of our bodies, there'll be a day when that ends. We'll be like the angels one day, no longer being in marriage or be given into marriage. But here's the thing. It also serves a function in this age to carry out the mandate to create more image bearers who will inhabit God's kingdom. And once the kingdom has fully come, that bodily function will cease to be because it will no longer be a necessity. And so... We'll no longer need to be given it because the kingdom has been consummated at that point, pun intended. Now, now, here's Paul's point. Now, 
we are still bodily creatures. And in our bodies in this life, we were created this way by design. But, here's Paul's point, we are so much more than just sexual creatures. This is where Jesus adds so much more to the current view of humanity that reduces everything to us as sexual creatures. That's the core of our being. We're told the story that if we just are free to pursue our desires and be true to ourselves at our core, then we'll be flourishing people. When we can define ourselves around our sexual desires, then you'll be the true you. And that's the way to freedom. Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We are so much more. We're not less than that. We are so much more than that. And he says something that's so much more profound back to this half-truth about our bodies at the end of verse 13. The body isn't meant for sexual immorality. Now, again... I think that's where typically when you've, if, you've, if you're not a Christian, that's typically all you've heard from the church. But that's not all the Bible has to say. That doesn't get to the question of design. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And then rather than becoming bodiless beings when Jesus comes back, we will be fully embodied beings, verse 14. And God raised the Lord, the Lord Jesus. He raised him bodily from the dead and he will also raise us up bodily by his power. You see, what God is doing is a work of redemption. And the language of redemption is the language of the marketplace Redeeming is the language of buying back. Imagine that you've gotten yourself deep into destructive debt, that you have to take your most prized possession and sell it to the pawn shop. It sits there of almost no value to the current owner. He doesn't care well for it because he doesn't value it. But to you, it's prized and cherished, and so it's got to be redeemed. It's got to be bought back. Our bodies are prized and cherished for God designed our bodies with all of their appetites and desires for intimate union and communion with him. He has given us eyes to see so that we might behold his beauty and delight in him. He's given us ears to hear so that we might hear his voice singing songs of delight over us and saying, I'm pleased with you because you're in Christ. He's given us tongues to sing that our hearts might be full with praise to him. God has made the body for him and he has been made a body for us. The God who cherished and prized our bodies, redeemed our bodies with the body of his own son. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he came with these words on his mouth. Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Now skip down to verse 19 here, chapter 6. Verse 
19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Students, hang that on the door of your room and and recite it on every date you go on. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Stick that on your computer, a sticky note on your computer. Every time you're tempted to lust, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because look, love is measured by what it gives and gives up. The spiral of sexual enslavement goes like this. I'm dirty. I feel ashamed. Nobody wants me. So I'll just prove that I'm worth something to somebody by becoming an object of any of their desires. Even for a moment. And then your lovers just take and they take using you for their own pleasure. And so then you feel discarded and dirty and you're back into the cycle. I'll just take the affection of anybody even for a moment. It'll break that even just for a moment. It'll break that feeling of I'm worthless. But love is measured by what it gives and gives up. And what is your value to God? The father prepared a body for his son so that his son could offer up his body as a sacrifice for our sins to buy us back from sin and Satan that cared nothing about us but just wanted our destruction. The son kept his body pure from any stain of sin so that he could offer his body as a sacrifice to pay the cost of our sin to God's wrath. You were bought with a price and the price of redemption was high but not so high that the Father, the Son and the Spirit would not pay it in joy to redeem you body and soul. All of you. To make you all his own. And here's the good news. There is nothing you have done with your body. That cannot be redeemed. By the bodily sacrifice of Jesus. So then go back to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Christian, what's your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has not just taken your soul to himself. He has taken your body to himself. It is united to him in one flesh. And when you die, 
your body goes into the ground and he holds it and will raise it up on the last day so that your members, every one of your members is one with Jesus Christ. And anything that he has purchased, he will not lose. And so glorify God with your body. Now that means, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now here I'm going to give us a list of some practical things to do. So if you're one of those guys that, or women who like practical things, here's your chance. And I, I'm not always that practical, but here's our chance. Flee from sexual immorality. This is his conclusion. Do it. Flee from it. So, first, if you're taking notes, first, flee. Make that the first step. Just don't, don't linger, but run. Treat sexual immorality like it's a bear hunting you in the woods. Don't think you can pet it and play with it. It will bite you and maul you to death. So flee from it. Certainly Paul has in mind here Joseph, when he flees from Potiphar's wife as she was trying to seduce him, he leaves in such a haste that she's left holding his outer garment. Flee, just flee. Also flee from circumstances that will ignite your bodily appetites for sexual immorality. I, often when I did college ministry and a student would come to me and we'd begin talking through how they fell into sexual sin Again, I'd ask them, how, did, how do you think you got here? And they're like, well, you know, and they kind of give me a recap of like the 10 minutes beforehand. And I'm like, whoa, 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 like this didn't start. That's not the way this works. Your body has an appetite. Those appetites get stirred by certain things. This started long, 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 long before that. You know, the ancient Jews would not let their children read the Song of Solomon until much later in life. And the reason was we don't want to awaken those desires, those bodily desires too early. That, and that's just the recognition, like flee from the circumstances that will stir this up. And that's a recognition that this is a bodily desires and it can be awakened and stoked by certain circumstances. And then just know what those are for you and then flee from them. For students, for some of you, it's just the admission that, you know what, even physical touch is too much for me. It may be that some times of the day you're particularly tempted to pornography be aware of that just know that there are rhythms to life just don't be connected to the internet at a time of day here's the thing again these are not enough and this is typically where our advice ends this is not enough this will not cause us to give all that we are to glorifying God with his body, with our bodies. That goal will forever be out of reach. We need more. Second, Paul gives us this. Consider the ramifications of sexual sin against your own body. It leads to enslavement. That's early on. And then verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Again, Paul, good theology of body here. 
acknowledges sexual sin affects us in deeper ways than other sins do because they dive deeper into the core of our being because these bodily desires are meant, designed by God to produce deeper intimacy with your spouse. In marriage, God, and Paul quotes Genesis 2 here, God does something, he does this amazing math. He makes two become one. And sex within marriage is both an expression of that union, is a physical expression of that union, but it's also the glue that reinforces that union. Scientists have been able to observe how the brain chemicals that get dumped during, during sex create deep emotional bonds. Now, I don't know how they study this stuff, but they've studied it. And the deepest possible emotional bonds are created by the body reacting to that activity. And so that the marriage bed becomes a form of superglue that bonds the bodies together and creates deeper emotional intimacy. But here's the thing. You better be careful with superglue. Every other sin you commit is outside of the body, but this one affects us so much more deeply. Thirdly, remember the implications of your bodily union with Jesus. Now let's get back to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Do you not know that one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? It's a vivid picture. Paul is is purposely being provocative here. You and Jesus are one, body and soul. And to take your body into a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse is to take Jesus, who is united in his body to your body, into that relationship too. And if you think just on that a bit when tempted... I think you might find that it diminishes a little bit of the temptation, but then add to it the dignity as well. You are a temple where God by his spirit dwells in you. That's a tremendous honor and and a tremendous glory. Don't defile the temple of God. The flip side of this is glorious as well because it means that in your bodily union with Jesus, Jesus is present in the marriage bed too, and he is taking great delight in approval. We'll see that next week. He loves to see his temple being used for his purposes. Fourth, set your sights on the great good your body was designed for. Now we're getting positive, right? We're, we're shifting from there's some negative to there's some positive glory. You're great. Set your great your sights on the great good your body was designed for. The body, verse again, verse 14, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, if you're on your way to a five-star restaurant with a world-renowned chef, and you're a little bit hungry, you'd probably be willing to put off the satisfaction of that hunger for a bit. You're not going to pull into Sonic and get some popcorn chicken. Like hunger, sexual desires too are a bodily appetite. 
They're not present prior to puberty when the body dumps a tsunami of hormones on us and we go crazy. They dissipate as, and wane as you get older as the body produces less hormones. So put your bodily desires into a place, their proper place, and live as though the greater joy of communion with God was worth not pulling into Sonic and getting some popcorn chicken. Because it's a greater joy that can actually satisfy being one with the Lord and communing with him, which is broken by sexual immorality. That is the greater joy that can alone satisfy. And so just put it off. Five, draw near to the Lord Jesus who has a body. All these things are just building up to maybe this great crescendo. Sexual desires are often more intense bodily desires than hunger and thirst. There is a great deal of intensity that comes with. So remember, in that intensity, to draw near to the Lord who was tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin and therefore can sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus was fully human. He hungered and he thirsted and had every other bodily desire and yet was able to resist and offer his body as a delight to God and therefore was qualified to redeem us with his body. And so if you're tempted, when you're tempted, when you're tempted and resist sexual immorality, don't do so on your own, but draw near. He's a wise friend who does more than just stands and cheers you on and says, you can do this, I did it too, you can do this. He is a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and sits at the right hand of God and he has power and compassion and knows what you need in the moment you need it. Therefore, neither the devil in his temptations nor your own sinful heart is any match for the Son of God who marries his compassion with his power. So, in that moment when it is so intense, remember this. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. You won't find a father there who's saying, can't believe you're struggling with this right now. In fact, you'll find a throne that's full of grace. And what will be dispensed from that throne in the moment of temptation is this. Mercy and grace for your time of need. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that you would strengthen us yet again, for we're weak. This is a reminder 
even as we take these signs of bread and wine into our bodies. It is a reminder the body was meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body and you are the only one who can satisfy us deeply to our core. And so strengthen us and comfort us and encourage us and remind us again of the tremendous freedom that we have and your blood-bought sacrifice in your body. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. If your faith is in Christ, this is a table for you because this is a table for sinners. Only sinners can eat at this table. But only sinners whose faith is in Christ can eat at this table. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, don't linger any longer. Take him to be your savior and then come to this table. My brothers and sisters, Christ has come. In him, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And Christ will come again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.